0: personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. I'm here with Ashwarya Iyer, one of my very first guests. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. We became friends probably about three or four years ago. And Ashwarya was at a startup that she was transitioning out of. And I remember she was telling me about this business she was thinking about starting. And I remember these initial conversations really, really well. Because beyond her intellect and her business prowess, there was something she said that really, really stuck with me which was 90% of the world's olive oil is rotten. Is that stat correct? Is my memory served correct?
1: Essentially, that's right. And in the United States, the number is closer to 70% as of the latest research that was done, but nonetheless, incredibly disturbing.
0: Blew my mind. Imprinted in my brain. So then you went on to build what is now Brightland olive oil, which I'm sure many people have seen because it's become a massive success and it's featured everywhere. And it's been really incredible for me to watch your meteoric rise. But really, you're here for a number of reasons, not just because you're an incredible business leader and you've built something that I admire, but you're also here because I believe our friendship is very special. And I wanted to share that with my community because you were such a believer in my business when I was building it. And I was building a very, very hard business that was working to dismantle the toxic practices of Hollywood and create more efficiency. And you really had my back and I felt very seen and heard. And I think when people are building things or working towards their goals, that's a really important instrument to have in your life. And I'm forever grateful for how you show up and continue to show up and I think that people can really learn a lot from you. And what I mean when I say how you show up is that you live in your values, they are integrated, and you challenge and are curious, but I think everything you do is done in a very warm way.
1: That might be the nicest thing that anyone has ever said about me before. (laughs) And I appreciate it. And I think that I also feed off of other people's energy and their, um, I think their motivations and their feedback. And I think I felt a lot of those things from you, you know, and I think that that also then allows me to reflect that back onto you. And I really, I mean that I don't, I'm not. Um, But I'm
0: excited. I'm excited to talk about this kernel of an idea, this idea that most of the world's olive oil is completely rotten and how that seed of inspiration. Just tell us, like, take us from that moment, from learning that fact and then sort of being like, I want to explore this and just what that journey was, because there's so many steps from idea to exploration to actual execution that, you know, start us with that process. You learn this and what sort of spawned the research and the journey.
1: I was living in New York City and I was working at a number of technology companies and startups and spent a little bit of time in venture capital, um, mostly on the portfolio side. So anyone in the venture capital or startup world, I wasn't actually writing checks or anything. I was helping our portfolio companies, the companies that we had actually invested in. I was helping them out. Um, So in any case, I had spent time seeing entrepreneurs build things um, try things out and just have a lot of courage and was very inspired by that but certainly wasn't the person that said oh my goodness I um, I'm going to be the one to, to do this one day and I was never that like lemonade stand person either when I was a child so for me it was always like if there's something that I feel that strongly about maybe but probably not so in any case I was you know living in New York and eating outside seven days a week. Eventually around year eight, I fought into a serious relationship and both my partner and I started cooking. And one thing that we both noticed was that we kept getting stomach aches every time that we cooked. And at first we thought it was bread and then we thought it was cheese. And then we thought it was spices and we kept eliminating what it could be. And I talked to a couple of nutritionists and someone said, you know, it could be the cooking oil that you're using. And I, until then, I had never researched, um, any kind of cooking oil. I didn't, you know, have a culinary background. So I did a little bit of research on the oil that I was using, which was olive oil. And what showed up was these statistics that Denise are seared into your mind and seared into my mind. And moreover, basically I learned that the industry is rife with fraud globally, like these issues are happening around the world. There is zero traceability. The Italian mafia is involved with some olive oil fraud for decades. So the whole thing just read out of this like really like crazy food fraud mystery novel or something like that. And so I was just so, I think, galvanized and intrigued and didn't really know what to do with it. And to be honest, in the beginning, I thought, okay, maybe there's a certification or something that I could do as a side project. And then I just kind of shoved it away to the back of my brain because I kept having this fear of what other people would say if I tried to do something. And I just didn't think I could do it. And got a job at another startup and moved to Los Angeles and, you know, kind of kept going with my life. And only when I moved here and started visiting all of farms here in, in California, I discovered the beauty of domestically produced olive oil and what that process is like and what it's like to work with a farm or even, you know, be at an olive farm, what that even means and seeing the process, thought it was so gorgeous and so beautiful. And that was the kind of, all right, I, I think there's something here where I want to showcase this like California made product and California made um sort of ethos and ecosystem a little bit more when it comes to like thinking about agriculture and food. So that was the genesis of and the kind of the starting point.
0: I think what's interesting, because sort of the same thing happened to me when I started scripted, a lot of it was like this idea in the back of my brain for probably like a year and a half, right? And I really do think your calling calls to you. And it'll keep calling to you until you start to sort of listen. And so it's interesting because I sort of also was like pushed to move to LA and all of a sudden I was here and it was like overnight, it was not conscious for me to be here. And what's interesting is that I've never, I mean, I've lived here for six years. I've never gone to an olive farm once. So was it just like, I'm curious, I want to go check it out. And then you just started really learning about it.
1: That's exactly it. And I didn't know that there was olive oil being made in California. So somebody, I was sharing these stats with somebody and they said, well, there's really amazing, there are amazing olive groves here in the state. And I was so floored and excited by that. And so I made a list of a couple of them and started visiting them on the weekends because they're only a few hours north. And that was the starting point. But I think, you know, when you just said something that I thought was really interesting, like how you know, you're, you know when it's your calling, I think that a lot of us, even if we, we may know or it may be in the back of our minds that there's something here, I think that fear takes its place and that kind of that inner critic comes to the forefront and blocks out that calling because it's really scary to follow that calling. And so I think it requires so much of like unlocking that piece first. And that's a lot of work that people have to do because I think we, we have stories that we've kind of written for ourselves. And in order to break that, you have to be a bit brave.
0: Yeah. And I also think I always say, like, I know I have a good idea when it doesn't leave my brain. And certainly, like, when you told me that stat, I was like, oh, that's a great idea. And she's going to solve a really interesting problem. It's like the more that you listen to your intuition and your body, right? Like, it's like eventually, like, it took me a year and a half. And I was a very, like, ambitious, audacious person to sort of surrender to the idea of being an entrepreneur, largely because my dad's an entrepreneur. And. You know, I moved seven times across the U.S. So for me, it wasn't like, oh, yay. It was like, I was the opposite of like our generation that romanticizes entrepreneurship. I was like, I've seen the highs, I've seen the lows. I don't know if I want this life. And so for me, it was less about the courage. It was more like I'm setting myself up for a, a life of instability, um, which is which is a scary thing and a courageous thing to then take that leap. And I'm sure for you, you sort of felt that way coming from sort of working at tech startups and, you know, a comfortable salary and background. It's a big leap, to jump into, well, I don't know where my salary is coming from, which sort of leads me to my next question, because separate from you deciding to take this plunge, I mean, you chose to, you know, self-fund and really bootstrap this business from the get. So can you take us through visiting these farms to sort of like, how did you even find, like, how are you going to manufacture this? Where, you know, where was the the press or the process?
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. That was such a, a big learning curve. I mean, I wanted to have a foundation of education before I just like rolled up my sleeve and embarked on it. So I took courses at the UC Davis Olive Center. I talked to everyone I possibly could. And I had never worked at a CPG company or I didn't really understand the consumer products um, industry. And so I had a lot of learning to do. Like, I didn't know what a co-packer was. I didn't know what... um,
0: What is a co-packer?
1: A co-packer is somebody that... like, So for example, let's say you buy a turmeric blend and to, to put into turmeric teas or lattes. A co-packer is the person that gets shipped the turmeric, the cinnamon, the black pepper and they're the ones that package it into the packaging that you select that you ship to them. So they're basically operating as the person that like um fills and packs and kind of manufactures your product. Got it. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that was. Um but I did know that I did know that I think that with olive oil, particularly, there's something special about the fact that it's one ingredient, it's just olives. And it's sort of the beauty of how the integrity of the process from it being harvested. So just a little bit of background, olives only get harvested one time a year. So they go through harvest once. And so then after that, they get pressed and milled into olive oil. So you're not doing ongoing production runs, if that makes sense. And so after I learned that, I thought a lot about, okay, well, what if we have, you know, the farm that we end up working with uh, or farms, what if they can bottle the olive oil for us because they the oil has to sit in these, you know, temperature controlled rooms. So it was just really like a, a step-by-step process. And honestly, it was talking to people who would give me five minutes, 10 minutes 20 minutes in the wine industry and ancillary adjacent industries and talking to people, of course, in the olive oil industry and gathering a lot of notes. And I didn't set out being like, I'm going to sell a million bottles. I wanted to sell a thousand bottles to start and see where that would take me. So I think almost like setting my goals to be a bit more attainable allowed me to actually get there and not get like overwhelmed To the point of what how do you say that when you just stop paralysis yeah paralysis
0: so what i love about how you built right was you were just like i want to do this thing it fills up my heart i'm passionate about it and i'm gonna start small And there was so much thought and intention put into every step of this business, and there still is. I know there still is, and we'll sort of talk about that in a minute. But sort of in those initial stages, when you were just coming up with like what you wanted the brand to feel like, what you wanted the bottle to look like, what there's so much about Brightland that feels like a 360 experience, right? You can tell that this was something that was really thought about, unlike there's a lot of sort of, I would say, like, these direct-to-consumer brands that are sort of the same marketing trope used over and over again—it's like the, the guidebook, right? Like we know those com- what those companies are—they all sort of operate the same way. They're growing really quickly, and yours feels different. And I would love you to take us through some of that, like initial thinking of what you wanted that to be, and you know, the process of working slower.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my time at venture-backed companies taught me a lot about what a VC-backed business is required to do. And I think it's very different if you're a SaaS, so a software as a service business or a mobile technology company or a consumer technology company, that's a very different proposition than someone building a physical good. And I had a lot of people tell me that, but I think that what venture is trying to do is like basically replicate the SaaS model and bring it over to like a physical product. Even though I hadn't done it, I just felt like that wasn't the right strategy long-term. And then most importantly, I didn't feel like it was true to my core ethos when I looked at brands that I admired. And so that I think that was one helpful exercise, truly taking a step back and sitting down and saying, who are the brands that you actually admire? And being like, oh my God, these brands are operating in a, a different way, in a different pace. Um, What does that mean? How did they receive financing if they did? What what does their investor base look like? And is that even possible?
0: What were some of the brands that like you you looked at?
1: I love the brand uh, Tracksmith. They are an apparel brand based in Boston. And they are just so thoughtful and content driven in a really like beautiful storytelling first kind of way everything is so discerned and there's a lot of dedication and just really love that. Um, There's a footwear company called Margo, M-A-R-G-A-U-X. And they're based in New York City. And I love them because they take the same approach. They're not going above and beyond to always have something to say, but when they do, you can tell that they've put a lot of thought into it. They are innovative, where they they are coming out with new products. They're not just kind of resting on their laurels, but they're not doing it in this way where you're like, oh my goodness, I can tell that you're trying to shoot for the moon in two years. And in the process, you're going to hurt employees and vendors and all of that because there's no way a sustainable business can grow that quickly in two years. So... Yeah. So those are two examples of companies. And so, you know, I looked outside of you know my industry or even food to find brands that I was like deeply inspired by.
0: Um, Well, I didn't know either of those brands. So I have some homework to do when I get home. It's always great when I don't know things. (laughs) So then talk us through, you know, the design, your sort of approach to, you know, putting together what you wanted the initial consumer to see and feel when they first met Brightland.
1: Yeah, I spent, I had spent some time at various stores ranging from like Whole Foods to the Goop store to Erewhon to, you know, Walmart and Target. And I watched people basically purchase olive oil and kind of stand in that pantry section overall, like whether it was spices, salts, olive oil, uh, vinegars. And I saw a lot of just bleak faced customers that didn't look excited by anything they were, you know, picking up. And everything looks and sounds very similar. And I took a step back and I thought a lot about my first job out of school was at L'Oreal. And um, I worked in the luxury products division at Lancôme. And I learned so much about just brand positioning and how to take the same serum, but really like add so much, I think, character to it and talk about health benefits. And just, it sounds very elementary, but this was just something that I didn't see happening in the oils and that category. And so A, from a packaging standpoint, I said, Oh my God, I think there's so much room here to play and have fun and do something different. And then B, when thinking about how we talk about, you know, even the names of our products or how to use them, I felt like there was a way to layer a lot of emotion that, previously, this category just didn't have it all. So I really wanted to build a lot of emotional resonance. That was the core thing.
0: And then you launched and it was sort of this, I remember this sort of whirlwind where all of a sudden you had this really sort of immediate response to what you were building and it was in all the press and you were really, you know, intentional with doing, okay, I'm launching and I'm launching with a limited stock right? And then it was like, okay, so you're going to add more stock. And I know off the bat, I remember you had a major retailer sort of, you know, offer you to, you know, be on their shelves. And for you as a brand, that's not what you wanted, which I think is a really important choice and distinction to make. And I'd love you to share some light on why that was not right for your company.
1: Yeah. I think it's important when you're doing any kind of, um, when you have any kind of business relationship, whether it's, a vendor you're working with, a retailer you're working with, another brand you're going to collaborate with on a partnership, that it um, has a mutually beneficial excitement, and it's not so uneven that one party is like, oh, you should be so lucky that we're reaching out to you. I think there should be a mutual respect and, and excitement, and not to say that this retailer that reached out, they were very excited, but there was an era, like an aura of like, you should be, you should feel really lucky. And the minute that I felt that, I felt, you know, that, um, I don't necessarily want to be beholden. I don't want my company at this early stage to be beholden to that type of thinking. Um, because I think that then limits you and you only get one shot. And, and you know what, I've had people say the opposite. They say you only get one shot, so you should go for it, you know, right when you get it. And my, my thought process was you only get one shot and let's say for whatever reason, you know, we're too early, the product um, doesn't do as well, they will pull you off the shelf and you may never get another chance again. So I wanted to wait. And I also wanted to, you know as I said, I'd never been in consumer products. So I was wrapping my head around how to build a business that was primarily digital first and digitally native. So then layering on a very complicated retailer onboarding system and all of that, like I, I didn't have a team. So I don't think that I could have even executed on it. So it was just all of these things together. And I had to honor sort of my feelings and the, the place that the business was in. Which it doesn't mean it wasn't tempting, you know, because how cool would it be to be like, oh, we're in that retailer, like amazing. But I would rather do that when the time is right and stay with them and build a long-standing relationship rather than like a flash in the pan.
0: But I think that's really intelligent because, you know, knowing when you're building a startup, right, you only have you've limited resources, limited output and if you do too much too quick, you end up failing just because you can't possibly support 8,000 initiatives. So you have to be really laser focused on what your sort of key next milestone is. And so I think that you were really self-aware not only of what you could execute, um, your worth as a brand, but also what you were trying to build. And I think that's a really um, rare thing because a lot of people get tempted and swayed and to like be able to stand in what you knew you wanted this to be is pretty incredible.
1: Yeah, I mean only time will tell, you know? I think that there are some other I've had conversations with entrepreneurs who were a one or two person show and got got an inquiry from a large retailer and decided to take it and it was the best decision they've ever made. So I think again, knowing that we have time and I think that that's another piece of it, right? Like really operating like you're running out of time versus operating like you have time. I think that that's a very, those are two very different like ways to build a business. 100%.
0: Your journey is your journey. It's not other people's journey. Like you have to do what's right for you. My fave quote is from The Defiant Ones. I think it's Jimmy Iovine says, "Race horses have blinders on because if they're looking left or right, they're going to lose the race. And so much of being a founder or an artist, I think is like not not looking left and right at what other companies are doing, but doing what's right for you and your company. And we all make mistakes, we all learn, but I think it's knowing what's the right decision for you in that moment is the only decision. And so I think that for you, it made sense because then I think, you know, you've gone on now, you had all this momentum, and I sort of want to take a step back and talk about how that felt because you've been building this thing sort of in stealth mode, you bring it to the world, it has this sort of like immediate awesome reaction. And that's, I'm sure, really exciting and celebratory, but also probably a little bit scary. So what were you feeling?
1: I don't think I had time to feel, because at the time, for the first four months, we shipped from my office. So we were packing orders on the weekends. I was packing orders at night. I had some wonderful interns helping me pack. My partner would help me pack. And so I think it was just such a steep learning curve, again, too, because, you know, how do we handle customer service? How do we think about reordering? We would constantly sold out, which, of course, sounds like a nice problem. And it is a good problem to have. But nevertheless, it's a massive problem. So even understanding inventory management. So I was so in the weeds that as the sort of what you're saying, like the nice accolades or things happening, they kind of whizzed past me. So I'm hoping that one day I can take a step back and look back at that year, especially because I think it was a special year. But candidly, I just don't think that I spent time absorbing it at all. <laughs> Honestly, that's real.
0: I mean, that's real. You, it takes this while to process. I think some of these things that happen when you're sort of so laser focused on the business and the next step and the next milestone.
1: Like the day to day. Yeah. And the and the like unsexy day to day, too. But I will say. Now, when I kind of look back on it, I always think like, and I want to make sure that I do this and I tell other, you know, entrepreneur friends, this: like, just celebrate those little wins because that's all that matters. And I think so many times everybody's like really focused. They're like, okay, great. That happened. Okay. What's next? So it's too much, like very much like a what's next mentality. And I think I'm very guilty of that too. So I'm trying to do that more, um, this year. And
0: so, but now you're no longer one person building something no. so how many employees do you have
1: now <laughs> uh between full-time and part-time we're at nine that's so exciting thank you we're hiring a head of growth currently and a part-time chef in residence so i'm very excited about both of those people coming on board that's amazing that's really amazing. And so you
0: bootstrapped this. You obviously had revenue. Sort of can you talk us through your journey in deciding to like t- take an investment? I know early on people had reached out. You weren't ready. You had some choices around that. So talk us through that sort of process. Because also, once again, a very enticing thing is someone saying, I want to invest in you. And you and I both know venture capital comes with its own sort of set of uh, strings attached. Um, but but what that was that process for you where you were like, okay, when am I, when do I want to take an investment? You know, what kind of investor do I want, et cetera?
1: Within the first six, seven months, I started getting emails from random investors. And basically it's not a big deal. I think companies get this all day long. And it's basically associates and folks at venture capital firms who are designated to talk to as many companies as possible because they have their own kind of quota of how many. Many companies they speak with, and those conversations may go nowhere, but that's what how they get um, that's a major KPI or a performance indicator for them. So, I nevertheless, though, it's still like quote unquote flattering when anybody like that reaches out. And so, in the very beginning, I just didn't respond to that, but then there were a couple of people who I thought were interesting, and so I spoke with them, and that was a good education for me because I talked to three or four of of, um, the types of investors that I thought, okay, you know, they've invested in these other consumer products, so they must know, or they must understand. And I quickly realized that, you know, I just don't think that that's the right fit, but I had to go through my own, I think process in realizing that because after that I said, okay, I think that I want to bring on investors who really understand, who have either built businesses like this before, who come from food or come from, I had kind of a a list of the type of people that I wanted around the table with me. And at the very beginning, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really have any of those kinds of connections. So I would get introduced to people who necessarily wouldn't be right for us, but I still would spend a lot of time with them. so it was a massive learning curve honestly and it yeah it was a huge learning curve and I had to I I went down the fundraising path and then stopped after about 6 7 weeks and then took the entire summer to kind of think through what do I really want and then in the fall of 2019 I actually started I said okay I'm going to I'm going to try to do this let's let's go and and it was awful <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah. As anyone wants to watch keynote I've done about raising venture capital, it is grueling and, um, you were successful, uh, but, uh, me less so. And it is a really, really challenging process, even more challenging for women and people of color. I know it's not a good time, but
1: you prevailed. So the rooms just aren't created for, for women, people of color, like the the rooms aren't built that way and the conversations aren't even built that way, so.
0: No, there was one investor who had like, just was asking me, you know, what was our path to a billion dollar company? And I was like, well, that's sort of what we're raising this round for is to really sort of like examine that secret sauce that's gonna help it scale it. Here's what my gut feeling is. Here's what I believe, you know, is gonna happen through this raise. And then I looked at him and I was like, but if you want me to lie to you, I can lie to you. Because it was so clear to me that he was looking for me to lie to him. He's like, no, no, no that's not what I'm saying. And I was like, no, but that's uh, that is what you're saying. Because anyone saying at this juncture of their company that they know exactly what that path is to scalability is lying to you. And you can invest in someone that is honest and can be honest about you know what their 18th month growth process is, or you can have someone that's going to hoodwink you, which is like you know unfortunately what I believe is the disease of venture capital, which is you have rewarded bullshit, essentially rewarded lying. And then when people are actually building real businesses with real thought and real intention, and I think at least probably in your favor, what was really helpful was that you had revenue, it was a consumer product, you know, I was building a tech product, which was revenue was delayed. So there's certain like metrics I didn't have that I think would have elite supported the process more. But it's really, it's really a challenging those rooms to be in because they're used to, you know, the questions are different for men than they are for women. It can be very infuriating
1: completely i completely agree with you i just think that it's not set up in a way to allow kind of really honesty and and humility to really thrive and survive in brightland's case i didn't really raise from traditional venture capitalists like i raised from angel investors and sort of a different profile
0: we ended up doing the same thing and i will say you know even though we didn't hit the amount I was gunning for, everyone involved speaks to my heart. Like every person involved in my company is someone that, I'm grateful to know, I'm grateful to be in the presence and they passionately believed in me and the business. And I think that when you do that, you're building a different kind of company. You're building, you know, you're making some less compromises. Like I know lots of people that they're uh, emotionally drained talking to their cap table. And it's a a whole other job, which is juggling those investors while trying to run a business. Good for you for sort of understanding the investor profile that you wanted to allow yourself to continue to thrive. Yeah, it took time. And I also want to talk about I know you don't love social media, but you're on social media. And one of the things that I've really appreciated, and when we talk about how you show up, and this is sort of where you're distinct in the world, is that you decided to make social media work for you. And you've created this this hashtag, or I guess, or this experience called calming content. And I wanted you to sort of talk us
1: through the inspiration for that and why that's making you feel good. (laughs) So my ethos around social media, and I mean, Instagram, particularly, um, when I talk about social media, because my relationship with Twitter is more or less like business LinkedIn. I don't really use much except very much for business. And then Facebook, I don't use at all. So when I talk about social media, it's very much Instagram. I really believe that everyone is very addicted to their phones. And we're also losing sight of what's actually happening in our lives because we're so concentrated on what's happening in a other people's lives, or we're showcasing what's happening in our lives in a very performative way. And everything is a performance on Instagram. I see a lot of conversation now as we're talking about racial justice around performative allyship. But I think that it's all a performance, whether you're showcasing the sweater that you're wearing or the soup that you made, all the way to talking about racial justice and inequality. So, in any case, I think that spending too much time on it just numbs your brain. And it also, it, it either numbs your brain or it makes you, it's not calming for your brain. And, and at least that was how I felt. And when I talked to people, it sounded like they, that resonated. And so, at the start of this pandemic, I thought a lot about what are the sort of feelings that people are feeling right now and is there an antidote in this digital world that like I can provide personally and so that was the genesis for calming content which is a little series with a hashtag that just showcases yeah nice calming imagery that's it.
0: Well, I love it. It's very soothing to me. Uh, I've been appreciating it. And I think it's something a little bit um, how I think that's a lot of what we have to sort of figure out moving forward is how can we make social media work for us? And how can we make it something a tool and an experience that we enjoy and not sort of an all encompassing thing. And I just think it goes back to sort of how you see the world and your company is that you're you're always creating experiences that are aesthetic and inviting. And I wanted to share that with our community
1: female founders have this weird pressure to post on Instagram personally and become like almost like personalities. And I don't know, I talk to male founders who I'm friendly with and they are building their businesses. Even if it's a cookware company or a a men's skincare brand, they're not standing there saying, Oh my God, I'm doing this takeover today. Let me show you how I'm using the product. They're heads down building their business. And so that was a big wake-up call for me because I was being asked to do things. And of course, again, that's an opportunity, but that's what we all see it as. We see it as these opportunities. And then when you take a step back, you're like, what was the A return on that? And what was the, in turn, how much time did I spend? Like, I, you know, I'm cleaning my kitchen before we do a kitchen shoot. I'm cooking something. I'm dressing up to do it. So those are hours that are being taken away from maybe focusing on my business.
0: Yeah, I think it's a balance. And I think there's a lot of founders who talk about that, which is like when you're at the conference circuit too much, right, it actually detracts from your business and you have to figure out really how to balance building and uh, promoting the business. Everything you do, you do with like deep thought and you're definitely very aware. And I think people can um, hopefully learn a bit from how you show up in the world. We're gonna move on to the rapid fire section. So just- Don't think too hard. Okay. First thing that comes to mind. I'm ready. What would you tell your 20-year-old self?
1: Your dreams are so small right now, and you're going to be so much bigger than you could have ever imagined. I have very small dreams. Like I wanted to be an optometrist and live in Houston and live in the neighborhood next to my parents. I didn't think I was worthy or could do anything more. Nothing wrong with being an optometrist. I mean, honestly, I couldn't do it. But I just didn't even know that there were other opportunities out there or that I could do them.
0: I think that's really. A really good one. I was the opposite. I think I had crazy dreams.
1: But that's amazing to dream big.
0: I have a dad who's an entrepreneur, so that helped. He dreams really big. But yeah, but I think that's a really good one for people to know, you know, to dream big, to like, you know, you don't have to settle for what you know or what's around you, but to, you know, expand your universe.
1: And I think that it's an immigrant thing too, because my parents certainly um, valued safety and stability coming over here to this country as immigrants. They wanted to desperately like blend in you know, not make too much noise, be quiet, be simple, have a stable life. And so when you like take all those words together, the only kind of jobs you have left are like optometrist or like, you know, maybe chemical engineer or something. (laughs)
0: Well, I'm I'm glad you gave us olive oil uh, (laughs) and weren't an optometrist. Um, What's the last book you read?
1: Mm, I just read um, The Color of Law. It's about how racial segregation in the United States was like rooted in how we ended up planning suburbs and neighborhoods around the country. And it was a very eye opening read. Talks a lot about where freeways are built, why they're built that way. I highly recommend it to everybody.
0: What are you struggling with right now?
1: I'm struggling with the fact that it's in the middle of a pandemic and now nobody really talks about it, not just from a like mask wearing, like that whole issue. So that's, that's its own, you know, separate issue and a massive one. But I mean, more from a business standpoint, like at the beginning of all of this, people were checking in, asking how everyone was doing. There was this sense of, okay, we're in a pandemic. Maybe we can be a bit more forgiving with a timeline or with a deadline. And now it feels like all of that is gone, and it feels like capitalism is just on top of us. You know, Even with a pandemic happening, we're not even able to break break through. So I find myself thinking about that and talking about that a lot.
0: I wish we had more time to dig into that, because I think that's a really interesting thought. But I'm going to have to continue. But I definitely think that we all can reflect on that. Yeah, and our relationship to the economy and capitalism as well. What is bringing you joy right now?
1: I'm riding my bike a lot and that is giving me so much joy because it's faster than walking, but you're not in a car and you just get to see things and you get to ride around entire neighborhoods or riding along you know, Santa Monica and Venice Beach. We'll take our bikes to to the beach and we'll ride. And that way you're also like clearly social distance from people on your bike. So that gives me a lot of joy and even doing that for 20, 25 minutes Every couple of days, my mind just feels so much clearer. I love that. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? The race is long. The race is hard. It's going to be messy. But at the end of the day, you have to remember that you're only racing with yourself.
0: It's a great one to sort of start the key takeaway section. So you're racing with yourself. I think everyone needs to remember that it's really, as we say, compare to spare. um, It's really hard and it makes you really sad when you're, you know, comparing your journey to someone else's and everyone gets there in their own time. And certainly what I'm learning is my sort of sage mentors, these 60-year-old, 50-year-old amazing women, they're just starting to hit their peak and their stride. And I think sometimes oh, I love that. we forget that. I love that. One of the things I want to also bring up is how you show up and how integrated you are in your spirit and your work. And I think that that's a note for everyone is that, When you're integrated on how you move through space, people notice and what has come through through your brand is something really authentic and special. And so if people can learn to be conscious of how they show up, I think it really, it can be very impactful and make a difference. And I think you're definitely a leader in sort of that space. One of the takeaways I loved that came up today was your calling will call to you. And it will continue to call to you until you listen. And I think it's really important for people to take note of what is inspiring them, what they're curious about, what's lighting them up. And it may not jump at it right away, but over time, you tend to know that feeling. And now I would say, I know when I'm going to start the next thing or the next idea because that feeling um, feels the same every time, sort of gnaws at you. So your calling will call to you. set attainable goals, look at brands that you admire, and you set some really key attainable goals at the beginning of your journey that allowed you to achieve them. And then the market sort of came to you and celebrate the little wins because it is a long journey. And if we're not enjoying the process, there's no point. And so I just want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing some wisdom with everyone. It's always the best to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful.
0: Thank you all for listening. You can continue to listen and subscribe to do the work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. It makes a huge difference if you can review, if you can share and rate this podcast. Thank you so much to Entertainment Speakers Bureau, to Angela, to Nichelle, to David, to Matt, to Smart Post Sound, Lenny for that musical intro, Lindsay for the graphics. I am forever in gratitude. I hope you all find and continue to live in your
1: purpose.